0: This is episode 30 of Ripe Good Scholar. Darkness representing evil. Naturally. It all started with demons and devils.
1: Yay! Yay! This is Scott Newstock, director of the Pierce Shakespeare Endowment at Rhodes College, and author of How to Think Like
0: Shakespeare, and you're listening to Ripe Good Scholar.
2: Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilized around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah.
0: Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. Shakespeare only had a few characters of color. Aaron the Moor, Othello, and surprisingly, Caliban. These characters provide a glimpse into the Elizabethan perspective on race. However, to truly understand Shakespeare's conception of race, we have to go further back and see how race relations were evolving at the time. For this episode, I read selections from the Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare and Race. If you want to learn even more about race in Elizabethan England, head over to ripegoodscholar.com EP30. Now... Let's head to the Middle Ages. Let's talk about racism. What we're going to talk about today is the evolution of darkness or dark skin representing evil. One of the most notable Shakespeare lines that comes to mind with that is Aaron the Moor being like, Am I black because I'm evil or am I evil because I'm black?
1: (laughs) Good for you. That makes so many people feel good about themselves.
0: Shakespeare only has a couple characters of color. Obviously, his depictions are not exactly what we might call politically correct. What? While I don't think it's necessarily productive to try to hold Shakespeare to our modern standards, I think it is worth discussing his plays in a modern context. I want to try to be sensitive as I say this, so I apologize if this comes out cruder than I mean it to. But when I say that, you know, Shakespeare was racist, of course he was by our modern standards, but I don't think that necessarily reflects on him as a person, that we can't enjoy and appreciate Shakespeare's writing because prejudice is not something that you're, born with, it's taught to you. And this is what Shakespeare was taught. This is what the people of his time believed for the most part. There's always going to be exceptions. There are always going to be people ahead of their time. Maybe Shakespeare was, probably not. But for us, what will be most productive is looking at what did these representations of color mean historically and how can that inform our interpretations today, which is why today I want to look at kind of the history behind Shakespeare's attitudes towards race. But before we have that discussion, I think we need to address upfront the obstacles to the discussions of Shakespeare and race. There's there's two main ones, that are the most prevalent, at least from what I've been able to see. First, that the idea of race didn't exist.
1: That's an interesting assertion to make when Shakespeare quite bluntly and blatantly defines people according to their race.
0: Where this comes from is the idea that the word race did not mean what it means today. It didn't have as many implications. I watched a very interesting discussion about how we have to think of this period as the time during which the idea of race was being formed.
1: Yeah, it seems odd to say, well, he couldn't be racist because the concept of race as it exists today wasn't fully formed when this is when they were forging this concept of race.
0: Exactly. Just because it's accurate to say that the word, the term race, as defined today, didn't exist, the abstract idea of race did. As you said, Shakespeare saw a color.
1: <laughs> Maybe he didn't have the fully formed concept, but Aaron the Moor does go on a soliloquy about the color of his skin and whether or not it's responsible for how evil he is.
0: And Othello also, you, there's lots of comments on his race, his skin color. This kind of idea that it's like, oh, it's amazing that he moves so far up in society.
1: Yeah. How could they be commenting on that if there wasn't a concept that certain people with certain colors of skin would be somehow prevented from moving up in society?
0: And so what we see is that as you have these growing number of people from the Middle East and Africa, and even into the new world, you know, seeing Native Americans, and of course, people from India, South America, it was another step forward in globalization, the people of Elizabethan England were being exposed to more and more people of color. So they started coming up with ways to assign characteristics to those groups
1: and since like this first wave of globalism ended up turning towards colonialism it seems i would guess that the way they defined those groups was in a way that made white people look good
0: well and i think it's a similar notion to what we saw with jewish people It was this idea of, like, we're Christian, so we're better. As you were saying, it gave that power of, well, since we're better, it's okay for us to take over these uncivilized lands and civilize them.
1: Yeah, it's okay for us to steal and kidnap and kill because in the long run, isn't doing things that are better for us better for all people? To which all people said no.
0: Basically, to me, if creating stereotypes or judgments based on physical characteristics doesn't imply a concept of race, I don't know what does.
1: Yeah, like that's what race is. When, we, when you talk to sociologists, and I did, in freshman sociology, that's how they define it.
0: Beyond that, the discussion of Shakespeare and race is often also hindered by this Weird misconception that there, like, weren't any African people in England at the time, hmm. which is a weird one I didn't expect because I'm like, he clearly knows about them because yeah. he wrote about them. There's a couple things that I think have led to this kind of weird misconception. First, Elizabeth herself had two separate edicts expelling all Africans from the country. Rude. Basically, coming out of a fear of, but what if they start breeding with us?
1: Gross and weird.
0: Well, I, ju- I mean, it's weird to us, but if you look throughout history, it's a common, weird fear. I-
1: the idea that we should expel this whole group because they might interbreed with us is just quite uncommon up until you hit modern colonialism and the slave trade
0: but that's what we're hitting the slave trade wasn't that old at this point colonialism was just starting now kind of what was the exotic other is right next to you and what does that mean for you
1: that's that's an interesting point that the moment we began this enterprise that was a horrific crime against humanity. Creation of wicked structures to uphold this wicked institution.
0: Well exactly. And and one of the things that was kind of extra funny for me about this misconception too is that officially, during Elizabeth's reign at least, England did not participate in the slave trade. Oh, <laughs> In part because the Catholic Church okayed it, and we had to have one up on the Catholic Church.
1: Of course. We we can't let those dirty Catholics uh, hold any moral high ground. For the record, Sarah and I were both raised Catholic, and our child has been baptized Catholic.
0: And then finally, kind of this other layer of why England didn't like the slave trade or tried to expel Africans from the country, or at least expunge them from the record.
1: Expunge them from the record.
0: Well, that's why we think there weren't any Africans. They weren't recorded anywhere.
1: Oh, so Africans were brought to England. They just didn't record them.
0: To go, nope, see, we don't participate in the slave trade. The other bit of fear on the English part came from the fact that the, the slave trade started in Spain. It was most prevalent in Spain. There were a lot of Africans moving in and out of Spain. So there was this weird fear among the English that the Spanish were actually sending them into England to infiltrate.
1: So basically, they were afraid of Spain sending up Catholic Africans to infiltrate England?
0: I don't know if they were Catholic Africans. They were Catholic-approved.
1: Oh, you don't want Catholic-approved slaves in your Protestant country.
0: There was, you know, many layers of, one, the beginnings of racism. Two, we've got to have that moral high ground over the Catholics. And three, we don't trust the Spanish.
1: I do like that to hold the moral high ground, they decided to lie about their slaves. That's two sins.
0: Listen, if you can't prove we don't have slaves, we don't have them. That's how that works, right?
1: Hmm, seems
0: legit. I mean, you can't argue with facts. Anywho, so those are the kind of the barriers to the discussion, which I think we have thoroughly debunked here. So now we're going to look at how it came to be that darkness and dark skin represented evil because you can see not always just referring to skin color but a lot of times darkness is equated with evil in shakespeare's plays one of the best examples i can think of is in Macbeth. he talks about the darkness of his soul yes when talking about darkness being evil the darkness wasn't necessarily referring to skin color but the fact that was that your skin was dark could be used to imply that you were evil or more prone to evil First we have to go back to the Middle Ages because as Aska Mortician says the Middle Ages were magic naturally it all started with demons and devils yay yay when you look at artwork in the Middle Ages and even into the early renaissance if there are depictions of the devil or demons they're not like they're horned but they're not like the red devil guy we picture today they were dark colored, sometimes black, sometimes kind of blue. Depended what paint was on hand.
1: Yeah, I remember in Dante's Inferno, uh, the devil with this horrific blue monstrosity in the center of a big ice pit.
0: It was cold, that's why it was blue.
1: It makes complete sense that science, renaissance right there. I'm to make a shirt called renaissance. Zounds.
0: Basically, because we represented the devil as darker skin like i think even even being blue it wasn't like a bright shiny sky blue it was like a
1: it was a dark dingy blue
0: anywho um so then this idea started translating into artistic depictions of evil or um you know bad people one of the best examples given was a depiction of the last supper um, from the Middle Ages where everybody is kind of darker skinned, but Judas was in shadow.
1: Ah, so it's not that darkness was carried over to skin color in the Middle Ages, just that darkness as a uh, concept was like, that's evil.
0: A lot of times when we're discussing, you know, God, heaven, it's light.
1: Yeah, the Bible is very clear that Like, light is associated with God.
0: In in that sense, equating, you know, darkness and shadow to evil makes sense. And I'm talking about darkness as a lack of light here, not skin color. You know, there's a reason, too, evolutionary humans don't like the dark.
1: We are a diurnal species.
0: There's the sense of fear and not being able to see and not knowing what's out there. That I think also feeds into this idea of night, darkness, shadow, being wicked. One thing that I found very interesting as I was reading an article um, by The Root, which I'll have linked in the show notes, was that the jump from black demons and, and shadow and all that to black skin being evil is not one that medieval theologians necessarily would have made.
1: This is conjecture on my part, but it seems to me that the idea of associating dark skin with like darkness and wickedness had to have come out of a need to diminish dark people.
0: Absolutely. I think what we have in the early modern period is the rising of the Age of Empires, This is the start of colonialism. This is the start of going out and discovering new lands and connecting with new people and converting the heathens. Yeah, a lot of the stereotypes, I think, were um, an attempt to diminish the exotic other in order to justify the conquering and the enslavement and all the horrible things we did.
1: I think you're not going to find a lot of pushback from, you know, general academia about that except from people who you just don't want on your side
0: and so i think particularly catholicism catholic nations and by extension the catholic church had to overcome that cognitive dissonance of like what the bible says and enslaving people (laughs)
1: It's very hard to portray yourself as loving your neighbor when you sailed to your neighbor's house and burned it down and took him and sold his children.
0: I think a lot of times they relied on the fact that they were not Christian. You know, as we said, not only was this a period of expansion... And colonizing and conquering, it was also the start of the slave trade. As the people of Elizabethan England became more familiar with African and Middle Eastern people, stereotypes began to form alongside the fears of how their presence would affect the English. Now, what was kind of the exotic other, the faraway people from faraway lands? were right there. And so they had to figure out how were we going to live alongside these people and how was it going to affect us? You know, as we talked about too in the episode on Jewish people in Elizabethan England, this was part of the time where England was forging its national identity. There had been a lot of years of turmoil leading up to this, to this Elizabethan era that was of relative stability so now we had to form our identity of what did it mean to be english and were we ready to have african people be a part of that and the answer was pretty clearly no
1: it's interesting the problem was how, how do we live with these new people in our midst and they say bigotry
0: i mean unfortunately humans by nature tend to be very tribal and i think it's easy for that to lead to bigotry
1: I think what made it possible was that the the real horrors were being conducted by primarily wealthy people far away. And that made the stories and stereotypes more palatable to the common English person.
0: Well, and I think, too, it's hard for us today to imagine a time where seeing someone with dark skin would have been a novelty.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. It's hard for most people to think, oh, what would it be like to see one of these strange tan folk?
0: It's just a frame of mind that we can't possibly have. In our very global world, we have been living alongside people of all races for our entire lives. And so it's hard to imagine seeing someone of a vastly different skin color for the first time. Yeah. Now that we've put ourselves kind of into the Elizabethan mindset regarding race as much as we can, and as we just said, that's hard to do, let's take some time to talk about Shakespeare's characters of color, namely Aaron the Moor from Titus Andronicus. Of course. Othello. Yeah. And Caliban from The Tempest.
1: I did not realize Caliban was supposed to be black.
0: He's not. So we'll we'll talk more about that. We'll start with Aaron the Moor, but we'll... We'll get into Caliban and why he's kind of often clumped in with the characters of color. Gotcha. But first, let's start with Aaron. He's the earliest character of color to show up in any Shakespeare play. And he is clearly, self-admittedly, the villain.
1: Yeah, really happy about it, too.
0: And I think he also exhibits a lot of the stereotypes we've seen. He's extremely sexualized.
1: Even that silly trope where the queen's baby is black... Oh, man.
0: So actually, that's kind of one of the more human elements of Aaron that we see is when he has that baby. And he's like, why does this child deserve to die just because it has dark skin?
1: That's, that's true. That's one of the really humanizing moments. It's also interesting because up until now, he's perfectly happy to blame everything on his dark skin.
0: Well, yes and no. I mean, famously, that speech of, as we talked about at the beginning, am am I evil because I'm black or am I black because I'm evil? It's this kind of general musing, but I think he very much relishes in being a bad person. Yeah,
1: I think you're right. I also think it really shows how this idea of race is crystallizing. You see all of these classic racist characterizations, uh... He's hypersexualized. He's villainous. He's violent.
0: He's the one that convinces the two brothers to rape and mutilate Lavinia
1: as the concept of race evolved to suit the needs of white people eventually the stereotype became that black people are stupid and controlled always by other evil people but Aaron the Moore is hyper smart he is smarter than everyone else and manipulative and not just successful at court politics he is Absolutely causing everyone in the emperor's court to dance to his tune.
0: As we touch on manipulation that leads pretty nicely into Othello not that Othello is stupid you know he's not he's clearly very smart he's a very competent general rather Iago is tapping into this inherent violent nature by getting under his skin because even Othello has a hard time believing that Desdemona would love him
1: yeah that's that's interesting I think Othello is much more complex than Aaron who's this pure villainous character because Othello is noble and competent and intelligent but if there's this sort of classic tragic flaw to Othello it seems that sh- to me Shakespeare wrote his flaw to be his continued blackness mm-hmm because the, there's an inherent violence that Iago is tapping into. With, with all of the hatred that is subtly flung at him throughout the play, he has trouble believing that Desdemona can love him as she does. And that is really nuanced.
0: One interesting thing to consider is that Aaron was written extremely early in Shakespeare's career, if not the first one of the first plays he ever wrote now Othello he's not only a more mature writer but has maybe had more experiences with African people with what would have been called at the time moors
1: you know unfortunately we still see that the prejudice that's been incubated by this the scaffolding of white supremacy that's being built obviously being black doesn't make someone more violent. But Shakespeare saw that as an inherent part of blackness. And as nuanced and interesting as Othello is, I think it's a mistake to turn away from that fact.
0: I heard an interesting interpretation on Othello's final speech. Tell my story speech that he gives before he dies. One scholar, I believe it was on the Folger podcast, talked about how that speech read to him, basically like Othello being like, try to see me as a person, you know, tell my story not as a black man, but you know, as a man who loved not wisely, but too well.
1: I personally think that his final speech should have been, Hey everybody, Iago's a jerk.
0: That had already been established by that point. Okay. Finally, I want to talk about Caliban. And he was someone that may seem unconventional on the surface because he's not, he's just called like a monster. Like he's not clearly black or a person of color. He can be read as a representation of colonized people. He was a native of the island that was used and abused, but also historically, he was he's often been played by actors of color he has a lot of those traits Hypersexualized. he just cannot control himself around miranda even going so far as attempting to reap her he has a more of the stupid element the like he doesn't know any better
1: the kind of patronizing we have to rule these stupid natives
0: attitude. And I think to us today we look at Caliban more as kind of the tragic figure because we can see a lot of kind of the wrongdoings of colonialism. But similar to Shylock in A Merchant of Venice, that may not be Shakespeare's intent.
1: While we can look at it and see the irony of this ridiculous characterization, he did not. He was living in this world in which racism was crystallizing. And we're living in a world where people have shined a light on this terrible institution.
0: We're having a moment of reckoning with colonialism across the board. You know, even in in Shakespeare's scholarship, you know, there's this discussion of what has Shakespeare's role in colonialism been? And not just that colonialism was starting in his period, but looking, you know, well into... I think even into the 1960s here in the United States and I and I believe Canada Native Americans were being taken from their homes and brought into boarding schools they were not taught their native languages but they were taught English and Shakespeare that isn't all on Shakespeare but his writing has been used as a tool of colonialism and we have to grapple with that yeah Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com slash EP30 for even more information on race in Renaissance Europe. The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us over on Twitter and Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye!
2: Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our courts shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art.